This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. The Canadian Cancer Society this week uh, lobbying to have the minimum age for purchasing tobacco and vaping products raised to age 21. The current uh, age in British Columbia for buying uh, tobacco and vapes is 19. So should the minimum age be raised to 21 as a way to discourage young people to start smoking or vaping? The vaping issue is interesting to me. Both my parents died from smoking. My dad died from lung cancer. My mother died after a brutal stroke. They were both heavy smokers. I sometimes wish if I had a time machine, I could go back and say, here, try these vapes and say, you know, vaporizers instead or e-cigarettes instead of tobacco. So I think as a tobacco cessation product, they're pretty awesome. But you see kids vaping, it's pretty brutal. Hot question of the day. Should the age be, uh, the minimum age be uh, raised to 21? At CKNW on Twitter. That's where you'll find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Follow me while you're there. Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. Call me on the buzz line today. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. All right, let's talk about the military tensions between the United States and Iran now. U.S. President Donald Trump said this morning he aborted a military strike on Iran after Iran earlier shot down a U.S. surveillance drone. In a series of early morning tweets this morning, uh, Trump said the United States was cocked and loaded, ready to strike three military targets in Iran. The president said he called the attack off after learning 150 people could have been killed in the strike. Let's talk about this situation now with my guest, Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Relations at Carleton University. Hi. Hello. Thanks very much for coming on. I mean, this is kind of, it, it seems like a scary situation. I mean, is this a real a possibility of a, a, a military conflict here? Or is, I mean, this is not just some sort of wag the dog kind of Trump thing, is it? Or is it real? I, you know, <laughs> these are all really good questions. And yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm unsettled by this, shall we say. It's it's never good when uh, two countries with major militaries are kind of doing this dance with each other. And really, I'm, I'm, I have to say, the thing that I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of is 2017, where we were basically having the same conversations, but instead of Iran, we were talking about North Korea. And, right. um, you know, we saw the tense, uh, you know, the escalation, 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 and then it all kind of, went away. Right. Um, and so, you know, this is the problem is that um, Trump, you know, <laughs> you have uh, presidential advisors and any government has advisors and foreign policy staff that are there and they're supposed to be crafting a policy which, you know, gives you a range of options at every stage. But with Trump, that's not how he operates. It's, you know, I think, you know, he listens to the last person that was in the room that impressed him as opposed to to, you know, a thoughtful consideration of advice. And so, uh, you know, what what I worry about is, you know, in the case of North Korea and even Venezuela, we've seen this kind of up rhetoric and then suddenly it kind of goes away. And what I worry about in the case of Iran, because that's a particularly uh, volatile situation, is that we may see the same thing, but eventually it could accidentally lead to war because, of some kind of misunderstanding or perhaps even right. a deliberate action, depending on how you see this drone issue. Yeah, especially when you consider that there, there seem to be a lot of hotheads in control in, in both countries. Uh, I mean, you've got two tough-talking kind of nationalist leaders, but if you consider Trump, for example, I mean, he's got John Bolton around him, he's got Mike Pompeo, he's got these hawks all around him, so are, are they influencing him and potentially uh, could be blunder into a, a war here because Trump is listening to these hawks? Well, that's just it. And that, you know, and it's interesting. So the reporting on this issue that's coming out of the New York Times is saying just that, right? That Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, who's a national security advisor, as well as Gina Haspel from the CIA, they were all counseling for some kind of strike in retaliation for this, um, you know, for the, the Iranian actions against the drone. Trump himself, you know, <laughs> You know, I used to use this expression when I, when I worked in intelligence that a broken clock can sometimes be right twice a day. Um, and, you know, I think with Trump, his instinct is not war. He has seen the United States 
stumble into conflict after conflict and nothing good ever really comes out of it. And I think, you know, so I think, you know, as much as he says, bizarrely, he has surrounded people he seems to not agree with. But for whatever reason, I think he is not looking to get into an armed conflict. And so, you know, all kinds of, of, of theories you can you can go from that. One is, you know, can the Iranians then play him? Because they know that he really doesn't actually want to get into a conflict. Or is it that, you know, we're worried that, you know, one day that he may just, you know, because he's not a very predictable person. One day he may just like right. turn on a dime and say, OK, yep, that's it. We're going to war. So it, it is interesting. I, I really wouldn't put too much stock in the uh, people around him. Trump, you know, he makes up his own mind. Um, right. <laughs> Uh, however that works. And um, so, so yeah, I'm not sure that the, the, the belligerents around him are, they seem to be successful in getting him to put extra troops in the region, but actually getting him to commit to force. Trump doesn't yet, and I emphasis on the word yet, seem to want to go there. Yeah, it is kind of interesting that Trump seems to be kind of one of the more sort of calmer heads in, in this. And he said yesterday, for example, that Maybe the attack on the American drone, which, by the way, is like a hundred million dollar piece of equipment here. It's almost like a big airplane. Uh, so it's not like a little you sometimes we think of a drone as this little small thing. And this is a major piece of hardware here. Um, oh, but yeah, Trump, for sure. Trump yesterday said, well, maybe it was a mistake but that somebody made. He had earlier told The New York Times that uh, earlier attacks on some oil tankers that had been blamed on Iran. Trump said, well, you know, the damage on the tankers wasn't that bad. He, he tweets out this morning that he called off this this retaliatory strike because he thought it would be a disproportionate reaction by the United States if 150 people are killed in these military strikes. So it almost seems like Trump is is the calmer one with the, with all these hawks around him. And it's not just, you know, the hawks around him domestically, it's also internationally to Saudi Arabia, Israel. They really want, um, you know, Iran to get a big old punch in the nose, too. They're, they're not fans. So, yeah, I mean, it really is interesting to see how, uh, you know, he seems to have this idea of proportionality in yeah. his head, yeah. <laughs> which is. And that's good. Actually, a good thing. Yeah, yeah no, that's good. I mean, like, look, like power to him. Yeah. Um, and because I, I really. You know, the problem is when you do these kinds of strikes, when you do these things, they're so unpredictable. You don't know how they're going to go. You don't know how the states can react. You don't know how the people are going to react. There's a lot of people who are pushing this narrative that, you know, all, all the U.S. has to do is kind of topple the regime and the people will help overthrow it and yada, yada. And we've heard this story time and time again, and frankly, it's never really worked out. And for whatever reason, Trump seems resistant to that story. And, right. uh, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and call myself a fan of his foreign policy because um, <laughs> there's certainly a lot of other things that I disagree with. But uh, in this respect, I think his instinct is correct. OK, speaking to Stephanie Carvin from Carleton University about the uh, tensions here between the United States and Iran. Um, that said, though, I wonder if you have any concerns that these two countries seem to be on a collision course. I mean, if you take there's a ton of military ships in, in the Gulf over there right now and you, you got John Bolton is, is heading to Israel to meet with Netanyahu and they seem to be Israel seems to be spoiling for a fight with with Iran and is despite Trump's kind of, I don't know, a little bit somewhat measured comments here in the in the last couple of days. Do you think that it, uh, a strike is maybe uh, inevitable? You know, that's a really interesting, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I was actually in Israel two weeks ago and had the opportunity to talk to people there on the ground from all different walks of life, whether, uh, you know, the government, the military, former military, um, you know, think tankers and everything. And what was really interesting is that on so many of these international issues and questions and even their own Palestinian question, they have this very nuanced and detailed understanding. But when it comes to Iran, they really do just see it as an evil regime that's out to destroy them. And so I think one of the risks that we have in the region generally is that if the U.S. doesn't strike, will Israel? And will it do it unilaterally and then try to bring the U.S., uh, maybe other countries in as a result right. by, by, you know, doing those strikes? So that's a real possibility. Certainly that was something that Obama was afraid of um, and, and worked really hard to, to try and prevent because we, we do know that Netanyahu, who was having to run in another election again, let's not forget that part. Um, he, his government, he was unable to form a government after the last election. They've called new elections. And so there's a whole other dynamic going on there right now. And, and, but, you know, it does involve the U.S. in that sense because the U.S. is a major 
guarantor of Israeli security. So um, I think that there's, you know, uh, you're right. I think we have to look at this region as a bit of a tinderbox. There's people who are very smart, who are in power, who have good understanding of this issue. But there's a lot of animosity. We're seeing a lot of changing dynamics because we're seeing, you know, you have um, kind of the conservative states, the states that want to keep things the way they are, um, that maybe take a kind of a hardline view of Iran. So that's Saudi Arabia, that's Israel, and, and their uh, allies in the region. And then you have kind of um, the more revolutionary states in the region, which are Iran and Syria. And then you have these kind of mi- states that are kind of playing this middle game, like Turkey and Qatar. And, you know, they also want change in the Middle East, but aren't necessarily right. prepared to go to the same lengths as Iran and Syria. So it's a really crazy game is what I'm trying to get at. And yeah. everyone has different interests and animosities. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take much to start a major conflict. We saw that in World War One. Right. So this is why I worry. Right. Yeah, I find this it- is why I don't sleep at night. This no, is why I, I eat I'm- a lot of carbs. I find <laughs> I find it concerning too. Like I think maybe it's I don't know. Maybe it's more dangerous than than people think. I mean, Trump Trump sort of walked it back. I guess this morning I thought that was a rational thing for him to say. Like when that, my generals told me 150 people could be killed in this strike, I said no. That's disproportionate. And I thought, okay, that sounds that seems reasonable. But I I wonder if there's like a a lack of a face saving kind of exit ramp for for both of these kind of tough talking leaders in both countries i mean this kind of started when trump canceled the the nuclear deal with the with iran and the, the military the economic sanctions and now we've had these uh, this attack on a drone and oil tankers i mean is there is there a face saving way for both countries to kind of back down well, in the case of North Korea, we had this, you know, this very strong rhetoric, and that eventually led to peace talks. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Trump would go this route with Iran. I just think the institutional resilience is probably too strong in the U.S. right now. Um, but you're right. I think you're right. Like, so how, what comes of this? But Trump also seems to be the kind of guy who doesn't worry about these kinds of things <laughs> you know he seems willing to just kind of walk away from things and not really worry about them so uh, like i said i don't know if this is just his kind of you know we've had it with we've had it with north korea we've had it with venezuela is this just his new summertime preoccupation and will he walk away or is because of you know he is surrounded by so many people who are kind of seem spoiling for a fight with iran will he actually go in that direction and the okay. problem with this president is that we just don't know We'll He's see just what... so unpredictable, and there's no strategy. Yeah, go ahead. Right. It's all good. Un... It's all bad, actually. Unpredictable for sure. We'll see what uh, comes later today and the days ahead, and thanks very much for coming on. Hey, happy to come on and, and uh, front about the world with you. All right, Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Relations at Carleton University. Let's talk about vaping uh, by young people. The Canadian Cancer Society this week and calling for the age limit to purchase vaping products to be raised currently in british columbia it's age 19 canadian cancer society calling for the age limit to be increased to age 21 this is after a new study came out this week showing that rates of vaping among teens and young adults right across canada up by 74 percent wow that's a lot of young people vaping interesting study as well said get this british medical journal that even cigarette smoking is making a comeback among young people, which is, uh, I think, even more disturbing. But vaping on the rise as well. Canadian Cancer Society says you should be 21 to buy vaping products. Here's Adrian Dix, the uh, B.C. health minister, speaking to Linda Steele about this yesterday. We're hopeful the federal government will move. If they don't, uh, we'll move in our jurisdiction, but we'd prefer they do it so that we had uniform rules across the country. And as noted, with respect to the question of uh, age, we're higher than most jurisdictions in Canada in terms of age. But I would say this, that what concerns me most is that it is not allowed right now. I mean, the, the late age limit is 19. And this study, the study in question, was mostly looking at 16, 17, and 18-year-olds across the country. And, and it goes, of course, quite a bit younger than that. So it's not just an issue of prohibition. It's an issue of doing precisely what happened with tobacco in this province. And this was led by a lot of young people. It became culturally unacceptable to smoke amongst many young people. We had the lowest rates of uh, youth uh, tobacco use in the country as a result of that, and we've got to engage with young people as well to see that uh, it becomes equally culturally unacceptable to, to uh, absorb nicotine in a new way. 
Oh, yeah, Health Minister Adrian Dick speaking to Linda Steele yesterday. All right, let's speak to someone from the vaping industry now. My guest is Sadiq Dea. He is the CEO of Van Gogh Vapes, and I'm very pleased to get come into the studio. Hi. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Uh, tell me a little bit about Van Gogh Vapes. I was just checking out your website, which looks like a pretty major website there. Uh, tell me about the, 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 the business that you guys are running there and the type of products that you deal in there. So we started in uh, 2015, and our objective, I myself used to be a smoker, and so my, my background actually is in business and tax consulting, and so it was quite a, quite a major shift. But uh, I, I truly believed in the products, as well as um, looking at what was going on with the studies around the world. Uh, the UK is a big influence on uh, my, my thoughts and beliefs and the way that they have pitched it as a cessation product versus kind of how it's being taken over in uh, in North America. And I, th- I think that it's extremely important, the, the position. And so um, the position we take is we cater specifically to adults that are, um, you know, interested in alternatives, other alternative forms of nicotine that have been proven to be much safer. Okay. What about uh, kids? Uh, vaping. Uh, how do you control that in terms of your your products not getting in the hands of of kids who are under age nineteen? Because you know I, I see you sell a lot of stuff online. Um, how do you check people's age if they're buying online? So we're working with uh, implementing age verification on a two step process, both uh, on ordering. So currently on ordering, we do uh, verify that they're overage. But uh, one thing that we've been working on on as an industry is um, having a program where their their uh, ID is checked actually at the door. Um, the other thing that we've done as an industry is, uh, you know, any any of the uh, any of the, I guess, the the ones who are involved in selling to minors, you know, we will completely avoid dealing with those kind of things. And in my opinion, I think one of the solutions is increasing the fines. I, I don't condone teen or youth vaping in any way, and I think that uh, one of the things that we can potentially implement is extremely high um, fines for infractions on this. Um, wow. So people who are selling to minors, they should be. Uh, it, it shouldn't be a small slap on the wrist. I, I would be fully supportive of extremely high fines and measures to try to curb that. Okay, interesting. What is the fine right now? I'm not 100% sure. I, feel, I believe it falls under the uh, Tobacco Act still. Um, so I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I, I know that it's low enough that uh, it's not being taken serious enough. And I, and I think that the other thing that we can do is potentially set up uh, or contribute to more secret shopper programs to really find where these sources of, um, like like what was said earlier, the age is already 19. So it's obviously still already a problem without even moving the age. And I think that it's more about trying to uh, find where where the avenues are and really cracking down on them. What do you think about the idea of increasing the age limit to purchase vaping products from the current age 19 to age 21? I think that if it's in collaboration with raising the alcohol and tobacco uh, age overall, um, I, I wouldn't be extremely supportive, but I wouldn't be against that. But if it was specifically to focus in on vaping, my, my fear and the fear of a lot of people in the industry is that as we villainize it, it looks less and less of an alternative to smokers. Now, quoting what uh, the UK has gone by, their their stance is that um, over the over the per year, they have about sixty to seventy thousand deaths and a countless number of uh, health problems related to smoking. And so their their opinion is that if we can continue to switch people over to at least a safer alternative, all the adults who are currently smoking, if they can switch over to a safer alternative, we've done a great job. And my fear is that by villainizing it a bit too much over here, can uh, can really impact the efforts or the potential viability of the product for smokers. I wonder if raising the age limit to 21 would have much impact anyway, because given that you've got this study out of the UK uh, saying that smoking and vaping rates among youth are on the rise now, uh, including among kids who are 16, 17, 18. So, you know, you're seeing a sharp increase uh, among underage kids already. Mm -hmm. So so would would raising the, the, the age limit to 21 make a difference? In my opinion, I don't think it will make a significant difference. They're obviously finding ways to get on, you know, get their products. And even if we were to increase fines and set up secret shopper programs, the the teens and the youth they always have ways around. They always there's always someone that's going to help them do what they're going to do. And I think um, it, a lot of it is to do with education. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were uh, we we were de- we were discussing with a few um, teens who who had fallen into it, and we asked them like, "Why have you started? What are you doing? Do you understand that you know there's a lot of nicotine going on this and that?" And um, some of them didn't even understand what the product was. They 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 were using it. They had no idea that there was nicotine. They had no idea what they were actually doing. And I think. 
education is a big part and then really making sure that it's clear that this is potentially a safer alternative, but by no means it's something that someone should go into. Okay, as, as we're speaking, Sadiq, I'm, I'm looking up the, the provincial fines for selling cigarettes or vaping products to an underage minor. So uh, the current ticket is $575 that can be written to a clerk or retailer for selling underage. That can go up to $1,000. And also, uh, repeat penalties can go up to $5,000 for repeat offenses. So five hundred seventy-five bucks. I mean, you think it should? You think it should be higher than that? I think it should be a lot higher. I think yeah. if we really want to take get rid of this problem, a five hundred seventy-five dollar fine isn't significant, especially when you look at the fact that we can't be policing every single um, transaction. It's just not possible. And so when these transactions do get caught, you're only catching potentially one percent of them. And so if we raise the fines to Five thousand, ten thousand on the first offense. It's something that people really think twice about. You know, at five hundred and seventy-five dollars. To be honest, a lot of people that I know, as well as myself, we started smoking when we were underage, and it was, um, you know, it wasn't the hardest thing. And a lot of times, you do have, of course, retailers that are strict on it, but there are many retailers that are kind of lenient. And I think uh, cracking down on that leniency is one of the biggest issues that we should focus on. So we're talking about the Canadian Cancer Society this week calling for the age limit to buy tobacco and vaping products to be increased to age 21, currently 19 in the province of British Columbia. Call me on that. Got open phone lines right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. What do you think about young kids vaping? I live near a high school and uh, I take my dog for a walk. I see lots of kids uh, vaping uh, around the around the school where my son goes to. And I think, what are you guys doing? Yeah, these young kids vaping like that. Come on. you got to make some uh, wiser decisions here. Follow me on that. Why do you think that's happening? 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Sadiq, uh, one of the things that I think is really good about the products that you sell uh, with vaping uh, is, as, as you mentioned, a smoking cessation uh, alternative, a product, a safer product than smoking cigarettes. And I, you know, I'm speaking as a guy who lost both my parents to, uh, to smoking. My dad died of lung cancer. My mom had a brutal stroke. They were both heavy smokers. Oh, Sometimes I wonder, like... I wish I could go back in a like a time machine and and say here use these uh, vapor uh, e-cigarettes or something instead. Yeah, it could be safer. It, it's um, I mean, it, to, to be honest, I have four I have four little kids actually, um, and I was first introduced to this products from my my. Uh, wife's grandmother. She's uh, unfortunately she's passed away now, but she smoked for many years. She introduced me to the product um, back in 2013, 2014, and um, I, you know I was I was extremely convinced. First of all, just the fact that um, someone who's quite a bit older was able to uh, use it to help her get, get off. And for me personally, yeah. my my transition over the last couple of years, um, I, I mean, of course, I, I feel significantly better, and it's. Um, it is a different journey. Trying to get off cigarettes is, you know, some claim it's uh, it's even more addictive than heroin, and it's extremely hard. And there are many um, potential alternatives, many potential cessation devices, but none have shown the success that vaping has shown. Okay, How, when did you start smoking cigarettes? Uh, I started when I was about sixteen, to be honest. Okay, and then when did you start vaping instead? I started vaping when I was about twenty-three. And did you notice a difference in, like, you know? It, it was a, it was it was a night and day. You know, within the first two three months, it, I, it was I was a dual user at first, um, and so immediately what I noticed was my my cravings went down significantly. So in between smoke breaks, I would have a little bit of the vapor, and it would uh, it would help curb that craving. And within a few months, it uh, it wasn't even a hard transition. One thing that I really noticed was that it wasn't just about um, getting away from something I disliked. I I enjoyed. The, the the flavor I enjoyed you know the 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 the, um, the taste of it I enjoyed the yeah. taste of vaping yeah. and it was more about I wanted to go towards this and away from that and so now today I still use it occasionally but it's not that if I don't have it I'm looking for a cigarette I would never touch cigarettes again I'm so happy my my health is better I can run around with the little kids I can do all these things and it doesn't impact me the way it did when I was a smoker. Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number to call if you want to jump on board. Star 9898 on your cell. David in Maple Ridge. Hi. Good afternoon, uh, or good morning, I should say. I think vaping offers kids the best combination of things for them. It's cool, 
and it tastes good. It's just like candy. It's addictive. They can get a variety of flavors. I mean, what's better? You can smoke these things all day. It's not like cigarettes where, you know, you can have one or two and then take a break. These things you can puff on all day. And that's what makes it so attractive to kids and gets them using these things all the time. Okay, Sadiq, what do you say to that? What, you know, I've heard that criticism as well, that a lot of these vapes are, are sold with kind of, you know, cherry f- flavors that are appealing to young people. I think that the, the, the flavor aspect is, is taken out of proportion as adults love flavor. Myself, I, if there was no flavors, I wouldn't have used it as a product. You can see that as soon as you walk into a liquor store. There's all kinds of flavors, and although some of those flavors might be enticing to kids, it's just as uh, appealing for the adults. And so even in my journey, and actually quite a few people that I've spoken to, a big part of their journey was the fact that there was flavors that uh, were appealing. And I think it goes back to the education aspect. You know, there are, there are things, there's medicines that come in flavors. There's alcohol that's flavored. There's a lot of things that have flavor. Adults do like flavor, as well as the fact that there's not enough education being done for these kids as, look, this is not something to be just taking lightly. Um, okay. it's, it's something that can be extremely detrimental to you in the long run. And one thing I just want to uh, you know, shed light on is that, you know, let's say 10, 20 years ago, the big issue was smoking in high schools. Um, now, as we're getting into the you know 2019, as we get into 2020, smoking from other reports, they have shown that smoking in high schools has gone down. And now, as an observation of the time, there's a, there's more vaping. And I think it's more um, as vaping is on the rise in society, we will see a slight increase in the youth. And what we need to do is curb those avenues that they can actually access it from. All vape stores are 19 plus. They're not even allowed in the store, the windows are blocked out. There's nothing that they can appeal to. As a company, we don't advertise in under 19 locations. Um, there's a lot of things that we do to make sure that people who are under 19 don't have access to you know, the advertising or the, the appealingness of this products. Even if you go into a, a corner store that has vapor products, they're all hidden away. They're not allowed to advertise yeah. the flavors out in the public. And so I think it's, um, it's more about being responsible and making sure that the ones who are irresponsible feel the consequences adequately enough that they're deterred from doing it or even going near selling to minors. Let's go to Bob in Vancouver on the open line. Hi. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good. What do you think? Good. You know, I mean, the thing is, the kids are going to do it anyway. So by raising the age, it's ridiculous. I mean, they're 19, they can drink, but they want to raise it to 21 to vape. Uh, I started mm. smoking when I was 13 years old. I smoked for 50 years. I quit nine years ago after seeing my cousin die of cancer. So that was, yeah. was my intent to quit smoking, but these kids, are, they're going to do it anyway. Yeah, no, no, it's, an, it's a good point, because even this uh, report that came out this week from the UK has uh, noted a, uh, an uptick in vaca- vaping among kids who are 16, 17, 18, already underage. Sean in Vancouver, squeezing one more here. Sean, you got to go quick. Hi. Uh, I just think that the big hurdle is we need to restrict online sales. Uh, I'm a vape user. Unfortunately, so is my 16-year-old cousin. And I know for a fact they're all buying online. And even if you add these restrictions uh, online or at delivery, they're going to find a way around it. But the minimum is being bought in-store by teenagers or for teenagers. Most of that is going through online sales. Sadiq, what do you say to that? you got 30 seconds there, Sadiq. What do you say to that? It is a tough one. I, I, I do agree that it is tough um, to, to police it. But just like we have to police it in the in the in-store, we have to make sure that there's high, uh, there's, you know, barriers to that. Uh, having that that check both when they're ordering as well as when they receive it at the door, it at least ensures something. And if that kind of person has the access, they'll have the access online or in the store. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Sadiq Dea, he is the CEO of Van Gogh Vapes. Let's talk about that uh, big news in Major League Baseball, especially for Canadian ball fans. If you used to be a fan of the Montreal Expos, it was so sad that Montreal lost their baseball team, I think. The fans there have just been starved uh, for a baseball team to come back to Montreal. Meanwhile, in Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay Rays have now been given the go-ahead by Major League Baseball to look into playing a split season in Montreal. So here's the way this would work. They would play the first half of the season down in Florida, and then you'd potentially finish up the season, play half the season in Montreal. Now, there's no timeline for this on when it could happen, but the uh, team has been given the go-ahead to take a look at it. Isn't that interesting? I don't get the Tampa Bay Rays. You take a look at their games and all those empty seats. They got a good team. They're actually in second place in the uh, Eastern Division there, just behind the Yankees. They're like like 11, 11 games over 500. I don't know. They got it like a good team, but the uh, fans there don't seem to support them. 
Well, maybe their loss would be Montreal's gain. Could they get Major League Baseball back in Montreal? And think about this. Could a team ever, maybe one day, come to Vancouver? Let's talk about this now with Tom Hawthorne. He's an award-winning sports writer and columnist and author. He's run a, He's written a ton of great books that I would totally encourage you to check out. Uh, the more, more recent one is The Year Canadians Lost Their Minds and Found Their Country. is a wonderful look at the centennial year, 1967. Uh, in Canada, he is um, uh, a member of the uh, selection committee for the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, Society of American Baseball Research. I could go on and on. Tom, thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks, Mike. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you think about this idea, Tampa Bay Rays doing a split season with Montreal? Well, i got to tell you, yesterday I had two screaming sessions uh, over sports. One was when Christine Sinclair scored her beautiful goal oh, at yes. the Women's World Cup. And then I'm on Twitter soon after that, and I saw Major, the executive committee, Major League Baseball, agreed to allow the Tampa Bay Rays to examine having a split season with Montreal, and I was air-pumping and jumping. Now, i got to tell you, I don't think it's going to happen. But it's really good news for Montreal because it lets it is an indication from the executive committee of Major League Baseball that Montreal is top of the line for a, a possible expansion or movement of a franchise. Right, right. Why do you think it wouldn't happen? Okay, so let's let's just say it is going to happen. Uh, the the uh, it would take about four years, they say, before anything like this could happen. So you have a team that starts, let's call them the Snowbirds, and they start the season down in Tampa Bay uh, when the weather in Montreal is really awful and still cold, and so they play some games there, and then they move north up to Montreal. So first of all, you're not having a 81 home game schedule. You have like a 40 and 41 game home schedule. Who's going to work your front office? Um, you know, you're, in Montreal, you're going to need bilingual staff. So does that mean you fire everybody in Florida? Or do you have two staff? Or do you have part-time staff? What is the Players League going to say? What are the players going to do? Are they going to have those with families? They're going to have two homes. They're going to have to move kids in and out of school. They're going to have to pick one of the two communities to do it. Um, part of the agreement about this, uh, agreeing to go ahead, is that both Montreal and Tampa would have to come up with new stadiums. Now, mm. Montreal has plans in the work for a new stadium, and they want a ball team. Uh, Tampa has a terrible Tropicana field, awful ballpark. Nobody's going there. Um, they're in the middle of negotiations with uh, uh, various communities in the Tampa Bay area about uh, trying to get a new stadium, and they're kind of at an impasse. So there's some thought that the Tampa Bay ownership is just doing this as a ploy to to try and force uh, some cities into better negotiating. But if if you're only having, they're only getting 14,000 people a game in Tampa Bay, with, wow. as you said, a really good team, like a really yeah. exciting team, good young team. So, you know, I, I think baseball is in deep trouble, has been for a long time in Tampa Bay. And they're the Potential ownership group in Montreal, they said, yes, we'll explore this. We're interested. Um, they really don't have much of a choice but to say that. Um, I, they want a full team. They want 81 uh, home games uh, with that much revenue coming in. Uh, but uh, they're, they're willing to play along. So let's see what happens. Okay. And I wonder what they would call the team if they ever did that. If you combine the Expos and the Tampa Bay Rays, maybe call them the X-Rays. <laughs> <laughs> I like the x-rays, and people were suggesting snowbirds, and uh, when I saw this morning, somebody said they should call them the Sacre Blues. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, people are have, taking this with, with a pinch of salt and good humor, um, but it's, you know, it's an interesting possibility. You know, there has never been in the majors a, a split city, uh, sister city concept for teams, certainly none that are this far apart. Uh, you know, Major League Baseball teams have played in other places. I mean, uh, next Next week, uh, the Yankees and Red Sox are having games in London, England, and the season started. Wow. We can remember out here on the West Coast with the Mariners and Ichiro playing in Japan. Um, there was a game uh, earlier this month where the Kansas City Royals played in Omaha to kind of launch the College World Series in the United States. So they do on occasion move teams to other locations um, to show off the product and to give people in those cities a chance to see ball. But nobody's really tr ever tried a, a split season like that. Okay, it is encouraging, though, like you say, even if it doesn't happen, it does show that Montreal, back on the radar for Major League Baseball to, to have a franchise. And that leads me to my next question, Tom, is what about Vancouver? I mean, Toronto's got a team. Maybe Montreal gets a team. 
Here we are, the number three city in the country. Could the Van- could Vancouver get a Major League Baseball team? I mean, we got a good baseball history here, right? Yeah, really solid baseball history. Uh, you know, pro ball's been there uh, in in Vancouver. It started over a hundred years ago. It's had problems in the past. Currently, uh, you know, uh, the ownership of the Vancouver Canadians, Jake Kerr and Jeff Mooney, are rocking it. I mean, if if any listeners have not gone to Nat Bailey Stadium, pick an afternoon game, get down there, enjoy a hot dog and a cold brew. It is a beautiful park. I, I've yes. been to several dozen baseball stadiums in several countries. Nat Bailey is as good as they come. So it's worth checking. Out now, could I've heard Vancouver I've heard not Bailey I've heard not Bailey called the most beautiful minor league ballpark maybe ever. It's it's you know when people make lists, it's included on the lists. Yeah, uh, so it's there. It's the most beautiful one I've been to. I mean, it's really spectacular. And if the game's a dog, just look at those Who beautiful cares? trees at Queen Elizabeth Park and enjoy a beer. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a it's a wonderful place. And Vancouver's very lucky to have it. Okay, I I read an article by you once, Tom, about the day that Babe Ruth came to Vancouver. Yeah, that's right. He did in 1934. It wasn't at the site of Nat Bailey. It was uh, Old Athletic Park. Um, in 1934, they had an exhibition game there in pouring rain. Uh, <laughs> and Athletic Park was at 5th and Hemlock, which no longer exists. It's kind of underneath one of those on-ramps to the Gravel Street Bridge. Um, so, you know, and uh, and a huge crowd showed up at that game, actually, <laughs> even though it was pouring rain. The players were in their hotels at the Hotel Vancouver, and they weren't going to play. And then uh, somebody sent a boy off on the streetcar to go tell them, hey, there's a big crowd. You guys got to show up and at least, you know, sign autographs or something. And they actually <laughs> played a few innings. Uh, it, you asked about Vancouver is in yes. the majors. Yes. Um, it's in the mix. Uh, you know, Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred uh, last year mentioned six cities, uh, four of them in the States. He said Portland, Vegas, Charlotte, Nashville, Montreal. And then he kind of left it. The, he's on occasion mentioned Vancouver by name and sometimes not, just saying there's another Canadian option. He's clearly referring to Vancouver. Uh, Montreal is the 14th largest market in North America, uh, the largest market not in baseball. So that's why they're top of the list. Uh, Vancouver uh, is about the uh, 27th, 28th market. So baseball has 30 teams. They're very likely to expand to 32 teams. So they're on the cusp. We're on the cusp here in Vancouver. Uh, The problem currently is there's no identified ownership group. There's no stadium for baseball. Uh, The sponsorship uh, backing is iffy. The fan backing, I think we could feel confident if they had a good product, uh, certainly in the early years, and then a good followed by a good product. I think people would go. There's money in Vancouver. People would go to ticket and see games. Uh, another negative, though, the Grizzlies having failed. And that would make uh-huh. any the other owners of baseball wary. They, they would consider that as a problem. Um, on the plus side, Vancouver does have a good sporting history. Uh, the Canucks, uh, you know, are uh, a solid, uh, one of the solid pro sports franchise in the city. So there's pluses and minuses. Vancouver's on the cusp, on the cusp. Uh, the one what? other great benefit is baseball has made it pretty clear they want another team on the West Coast. Uh, so that puts Vancouver and Portland in the mix. Um, Portland is... Um, a, you know, uh, a uh, slightly larger uh, uh, market than Vancouver. Right. Uh, so that's a possibility. But at the same time, then uh, uh, Seattle may have some complaints about uh, uh, claiming uh, t- television rights and things like that. Even though we're this close, they, 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 the baseball sees a national boundary and consider us Blue Jay territory. So, What about, uh, you mentioned the possibility of, you know, they need to find a stadium. What about BC Place? I mean, I remember when they renovated BC place and put the retractable lid on and everything there there was some talk like oh you know maybe they could play baseball in bc play stadium yeah the problem with the bc play stadium is it uh, the to jam uh, the baseball dimensions into it doesn't quite work so there is possibilities you could do some renovation to make that happen the current big problem is the video scoreboard um, it's in the way it's in play <laughs> so that's a problem uh, when they when they renovated BC Place, they obviously made a decision that uh, was unlikely to have a major league franchise. They didn't uh, take the needs of a major league baseball franchise into account, and it's really 
It right. probably couldn't happen there. Um, I always thought that the best place for a new stadium would be uh, near uh, Central Station, uh, Main Street area, where the new hospital, where the hospital is going to move to. Uh, so I'm glad a hospital is going there. Uh, but uh, that would have been an incredible location for uh, a sports stadium. Okay. Uh, that's going to be a problem uh, for Vancouver to, ex- you know, for if baseball is going to expand to Vancouver, land. We know how much land costs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. We can keep hope alive, though, for sure, Tom. And <laughs> you uh, bet. <laughs> I mean, if they're gonna, if Montreal's maybe gonna get a team, I think Vancouver's got to be in the conversation down the road too. Tom, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. Okay, you bet. That's Tom Hawthorne, the very fine uh, writer, columnist, author. Uh, check out all his work. He's he's everywhere. Uh, he's written some wonderful books. He's a he's a um, a great baseball fan and a baseball historian. I appreciate his time today. Let's talk about that bill in Ottawa now that uh, looks like it's not made it across the finish line here. This is the one that was proposed by former Conservative MP Rona Ambrose. It would have required mandatory sexual assault training for federal judges, and this bill was passed unanimously in the House of Commons. Two years ago, how often do you see that? A bill passed unanimously. It then went to the Senate, where it's been tied up ever since. Now, this is a bill that would have required mandatory sexual assault training for judges. You remember that judge who's, who uh, apologized after he told a 19-year-old sexual assault victim, uh, why didn't you keep your knees together? Stuff like that. This is something that was needed, right? I mean, this is why it passed unanimously why did it not get across the finish line in the senate let's check in with senator don plett now he's the conservative whip in the senate senator thank you for coming on my pleasure mike how come this bill didn't get done this thing was passed unanimously by the house of commons what happened we didn't get to it in the uh, chamber it got stuck in committee for uh, almost two years um the Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee has been busy dealing with government legislation, as has been uh, the Senate policy uh, and rules for 152 years, that when a committee has government legislation to deal with, they're obligated to deal with that. Uh, about a month, month and a half ago, we made an effort, uh, Senator P- Pierre uh, Boisvenu, uh made a motion at the Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee to uh, leapfrog this bill uh, ahead of Bill C-78, I believe, the Divorce Act bill, um, in order for them to deal with it so that we, in fact, could deal with it in the chamber. That was turned down by a vote of nine to three. All three conservative senators voted in favor of it, and nine independent and liberal senators voted against that motion. So did, did, it did not get out of the committee in time for us to deal with it. So I think it's very, I think it's very frustrating, Senator, for people to hear this this kind of partisan kind of finger pointing back and forth over this when you have a piece of legislation that has has, has enjoyed wide multi party support. Uh, in the House of Commons passed unanimously. I mean, did you support this bill yourself on the sexual assault training for judges? I absolutely support the intent okay. of the bill. The, the the way the bill was drafted, no, which is why it goes to committee. And the committee put in some very good amendments, which I absolutely supported. But, Mike, let me be perfectly clear. I am offended by somebody saying this finger-pointing. I am giving you the facts, Mike, that a conservative senator made a motion in committee to move the bill forward and it was thwarted by the independent senators not by conservative senators it got held up in committee not by conservative senators in light of that it did not have time to pass the senate well wasn't there also a problem though with you adjourning debate for the entire chamber for the evening and then coming back on a parliamentary privilege motion wasn't that a problem no when 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 did i ever do that you know what? Here's the thing, though, Senator. I mean, you've got a bill that the the country wanted and has been passed by the House of Commons unanimously. It it sits in your cha- your Senate chamber there for two years and it doesn't get passed. I mean, no, can you it see, did like, not sit in our chamber. It sat at Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee, well, where we tried to move it out of, and well, we couldn't just, because it was stopped by independent senators, not by conservative senators. Well, what do, what do you say to Rona Ambrose? I mean, here's a very respected former conservative MP from from your own party who championed this bill, and she's saying this just shows that, you know, shows the Senate's just an old boys club. Well, I say to Ronna Ambrose, 
to come and watch. Ronna Ambrose came and testified at committee. I, I'm sorry, Mike. I cannot help what Ronna uh, Ambrose says me? out there. Ronna no? is very frustrated oh. that her very well-intentioned bill did not make it across the finish line. But again, not as a result of what conservative senators did. It's a result of what, what Senator Delfond, Senator Pratt, Senator Murray Sinclair, who voted against our motion in committee. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, though, when you rhyme off the names of these senators, I think most of the people listening, the vast majority of them wouldn't even know who the, who these people are. Because well, let me Senate, tell you who Senate, they are. Senator well, Murray Sinclair is yeah. the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, a judge. Senator Delfond is a respected judge from, from, from the province of Quebec. That's who they are. Well, I guess the the bottom line, though, is you guys didn't get this done. And I think for a lot of people, it shows that the Senate's a joke. Well, I'm sorry. I don't think the Senate's a joke. We got 21 government, uh, 21 pieces of government legislation done. We are a chamber that is supposed to deal with government legislation. Unfortunately, private yeah. members' legislation takes second place to government legislation. That is what the taxpayers of Canada are paying us to do. I don't think the Senate's a joke. I think the Senate is an institution that has served our country well for 152 years and will continue to do just that. All uh, four parties, all four parties, Mike, uh, all four parties have now committed to bringing a bill forward. When we come back, whoever comes back, whoever wins the election, bringing a government bill forward on the sexual assault uh, and 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 uh, similar to what Ronna Ambrose's bill is, and they will put the weight of the government behind it. That is what should have been done in the first place. Okay, but I, I suggest to you though that it shows that you may say that the Senate's not a joke. But when you have a piece of legislation that enjoys multipartisan support, every single member of the House of Commons votes for it, and then it doesn't get across the finish line. That's what so why people, didn't that's they what make people are, government legislation? Well, that's what people are looking at the Senate chamber, though, and saying, how come this, how come this happens? How do we prevent this from happening and again? I'm looking at the House of Commons and saying, why didn't you make this government legislation? It was a private member's bill. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. And we have rules in the Senate that have stood the test of time for 152 years. Now, all of a sudden, it is the Conservatives' fault because independent senators appointed by the Prime Minister, by Justin Trudeau, stopped this bill from becoming law. And that is somehow the Conservatives' fault. We have 30 seats in okay. the Senate, 30 out of a 105-seat chamber. How right. can the 30 members stop a bill that 75 other members want? It's All impossible. Right. All right, Senator. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. That is Senator Don Platt. He is the conservative whip uh, in the Senate, uh, taking some heat over this bill and not making it uh, through the getting across the finish line in the Senate. Let's check in now with Rona Ambrose, the former Conservative MP. She's the uh, the who uh, moved this uh, bill originally. Uh, Rona Ambrose, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, no problem, Mike. Thanks okay. for having me. Tell me about your bill. What is it? Uh, what would it have accomplished? Yeah, well, let's let's first talk about the why. Okay. Uh, in Canada, one in three Canadians will suffer um, potentially a sexual assault or sexual violence in their lifetime, but only one in ten will actually report it to police. And when asked, a Justice Canada report and research showed that it's because they have no confidence in our courts. And one of the, the things that was identified is judicial oversight. And judges who say things like, why didn't you just keep your knees closed to a young woman who was raped? Yes. Or things like, you know, why did you flirt with him ahead of time, even though the woman said, but I said no, I said no repeatedly. Or judges who say, uh, well, I think she consented and actually let the guy off the hook when the woman was, and this was just overturned by the Supreme Court recently, and this guy was actually convicted by the Supreme Court, which is also a very unusual thing to see happen. But the judge in the trial um, found that this guy, uh, that this woman actually consented, and she was drugged by this guy, dragged into a room, raped repeatedly, and she was unconscious at the time. And somehow he thought she consented. And so uh -huh. sexual assault law is highly complex and nuanced. And it changes because things changes in the, change in the criminal code. And researchers and academics and activists and even judges say that this is the one area of law that judges have to have training, ongoing training. 
And right now in Canada, we have judges that have been former real estate lawyers, former corporate lawyers, former energy sector lawyers, and they may be very smart people. All of a sudden, they're sitting on the bench, and they're actually overseeing, presiding over a sexual assault case, and they have no training in sexual assault law. So my bill was about was about basically saying, hey, everybody, this is a really complicated area, and if you get it wrong, you really, really screw up somebody's life. So let's get training. And so, as you said, it was a, really a no-brainer, yeah. and it was supported by all parties, all political leaders. And today we have the support of this bill from the Judicial uh, Council, the Judicial Institute, so even judges are supporting it. And yet, it got stuck in the Senate for two years. Was was there any? I, I yeah, that's amazing that this bill was passed unanimously by the House of Commons. You rarely you rarely see that. Uh, was there any criticism? I, I think there was some some criticism of the bill. That would this create uh, uh, encourage judges to be more biased toward the complainant in a case or the victim in a case, or maybe if uh, sexual assault training is is provided by. Uh, sexual assault centers, maybe the training would make judges more sympathetic to victims. Mm -hmm. Was was that, was that a concern? Yeah, that was a, that was a a concern, but it was very quickly dealt with by the fact that the training would be actually delivered by the Institute that provides judges with training. So it's an arm's length body that currently provides the training. They would be the ones to develop the training. And remember, we're not asking them to learn something different. We're asking them to learn the law. Okay. Just to be co- just to be competent in the existing law. So you're not asking for bias. You're asking for competency in how they learn the law right. and that they actually know it. What did you think about the bill not getting across the finish line in the Senate? Well, I think the Senate already suffers from a pretty bad reputation, and people are quite cynical about the institution. And, and this kind of stuff doesn't help because it took 18 months for it to just get to committee. And that committee is where you actually get to answer questions and maybe amend the bill. But we couldn't even convince, and when I say we, I mean hundreds and hundreds and thousands of activists and women's groups and men and women that care about this issue. We couldn't convince the Senate to let it even get to committee for 18 months. It finally got there with a lot of public pressure. It was amended. It actually, you know, kudos to the senators on that committee. We made it stronger And then it sat there for weeks, and it was killed in the Senate. And there was a couple of opportunities for it to actually get over the finish line. And while my bill sat there for two years, 13 other private members' bills passed. So this idea that government legislation takes precedent is true, but other private members' bills passed. So at the end of the day, there's lots of blame to go around in the Senate, but they just didn't make it a priority. And and so I, I... You've referred to you've referred to the Senate as an old boys club in the past. And I reminded Senator Platt in my conversation with him earlier about that today. And here's what he said to me. I say to Ronna Ambrose to come and watch. Ronna Ambrose came and testified at committee. I'm sorry, Mike. I cannot help what Ronna Ambrose says out there. Ronna is very frustrated that her very well-intentioned bill did not make it across the finish line. But again, not as a result of what conservative senators did. It's a result of what what Senator Delfond, Senator Pratt, Senator Murray Sinclair, who voted against our motion in committee. Okay, what, what do you think of that? Well, I think, as I said, you know, when, when all these guys are pointing at each other, the, and I'll tell you, the majority of senators supported this bill and were really frustrated that a couple of people held it up. And, you know, it's people look at this and they think it's just playing politics. Here was something good. Why couldn't we come together just like we did in the House of Commons? And so what I say to people is, look, this was really unfortunate and it shouldn't have happened. It was undemocratic. But I do say we should have faith in our elected leaders because they decided to make this bill a priority in the House of Commons. They passed it unanimously. And now today, because of what happened in the Senate, they've all come out together to say they're all going to commit to putting it in their election platforms. Right. No matter who wins government, this will become a law. And it won't be a private member's bill, so no one will be able to use that as an excuse in the Senate. And so I'm glad. I'm really happy to see that the people that represent Canadians have done the right thing. And this is great news because, yes, that was a really tough bump in the road. But all that matters here is that this issue be moved forward and we do what's good for victims of sexual assault, improve 
and build confidence in our justice system so more people come forward to report when okay. they are sexually assaulted. Okay, so, just, you know just, what? It's a good news ending. <laughs> yeah, we just, we just got a minute left here, Rona. I mean, yeah, I, I guess at the end of the day, disappointing that your Senate, your bill effectively dies in, in the Senate. But like you said, every single party now committing to bringing it forward. So it doesn't matter who wins the next next election. It appears that uh, we'll get this. You'll get this done. Yeah, we're going to get yeah. it done. And look, yeah. that's the important thing for survivors and for advocates and activists and so many people that lost faith in their leaders. But they have to remember that, yes, the Senate, the unelected Senate didn't do us, a, you know, did us a disservice. But our elected leaders stepped in and said, nope, we're not going to let this happen. We're going to get this done. And we're going to whoever wins the election, no matter what, even the Green Party said it, we're going to get this over the finish line. So I, that restores my faith in democracy to see that our elected representatives understand what an important issue this is. And they've listened to Canadians. And that's great. Thanks very much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. That's Rona Ambrose, a former conservative MP. She's a former interim leader of the Conservative Party, talking about her private members' bill. Come When it comes to the Senate of Canada, a lot of people think if you're not going to elect it, maybe just abolish it. I mean, maybe just get rid of it. I mean, here you got a, a bill that's passed unanimously in the House of Commons. And then you got these guys squabbling over it, and it dies on the order paper. I mean, that's a joke. So that's why I think a lot of people look at the Senate and just say, you know what? If you're not going to fundamentally overhaul it and reform it to make it some sort of an effective, uh, accountable chamber, maybe just get rid of the whole damn thing. Now, you heard my uh, interview there with uh, John Platt, the conservative whip there in the Senate, about this bill uh, not making it over the finish line in the Senate. Rona Ambrose... In the next, uh, later on this hour, the former conservative MP, she's the one who had that private member's bill on sexual assault training for judges. She'll be my guest coming up at 1245, okay? So I know she was listening to that interview, and she will have something to say about it, I'm sure. So make sure you stick around for that. All right, let's talk about the uh, situation in Surrey now as we approach the one-year anniversary this weekend of the death of Paul Bennett. That was the 47-year-old hockey dad, very popular nurse, Lots of friends, uh, great family, gunned down in his driveway on a Saturday afternoon one year ago this weekend. Have a listen to this. This is Darlene Bennett, his widow. We've lived there for over 10 years and um, never in my wildest dreams would I think something like this could have happened to us. And our community is there. My support is there. And I have an army behind me and, um, and the boys and that's carrying us through okay that crime uh, remains unsolved let's check in with cash heed now the former public safety minister the former west vancouver police chief i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show cash thanks for coming on good afternoon mike as we look back on paul bennett losing his life here one year ago this weekend what thoughts go through your mind this is an ongoing problem that we've had, not only taking place in Surrey. Uh, the, the infamous Surrey 6 took place there where innocent people are killed. It's happened in Abbotsford. It's happened in Port Moody. It's happened in Burnaby. Vancouver, Mike, you, you'll remember this. It's go back to 1994 when Glenn Olson was killed. We recently had a young teen in a vehicle that was killed in Vancouver. So in Abbotsford, a 74-year-old innocent person uh, killed by a stray bullet. The, the point I want to make here on, on Paul's anniversary is that people think that they are not going to be a victim, especially when police say it's a targeted crime, when in fact we've had people that have endlessly been killed, unfortunately, that are innocent bystanders or mistaken identity. The one in Richmond that I'm uh, very familiar with, uh, the the individual died because he had the same type of truck as Tajali, who was involved in the Dover Six uh, Park sh- or the Dover uh, shooting on Westminster Highway here. So things of this nature continue to happen, Michael. And, you, you know, I, 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 I've said this endlessly, is that unless we effectively put in police reforms, unfortunately, Michael, these tragic circumstances will continue to happen in the mid of day. Okay, speaking of Kashid, the, the former Solicitor General for BC, this particular crime, one year later, still unsolved cash. And how difficult is it for police and investigators to crack a crime like this, where there's almost like on the street, there's that omerta, you know, where people just will not will not squeal, they will, they will not speak up. How tough is it for the cops to solve a crime like this? 
It's been tough for many, many years, but uh, it's not an easy situation because I often use the phrase, one day suspect, next day victim. So that uh, happens. Now, now police have remarkably uh, volumes and volumes of intel. I wouldn't be surprised if they know who the individuals were that were involved in this. They just can't bring the case in front of the courts right now. Because if you recall, uh, not too long after the unfortunate circumstances to Paul, there was another shooting where an individual was killed not too far from uh, the Bennett home. So when you start to put two and two together, when you start to look at this, uh, you would hope that law enforcement, with all of the databases they have, uh, with all the people that are in that database that are they can connect and draw relationships with, have some idea of what has happened. Because this whole uh, Paul Bennett murder uh, alarmed me because, if you recall, police originally said it was a targeted uh, incident, and yes. it took them almost a month for them to clarify and say he was an innocent person. So that yeah. kind of raised some flies because that evening of the murder of Paul, from sources that I know, were telling me that that was an innocent uh, murder. Unfortunately, yeah, but and a very unfortunate that a cloud was kind of hanging over him yes. and and his family in the immediate aftermath. Because of course, when the police say it's targeted, they think they think, well, what was he up to? What was he doing? And then it took them so long to say, no, no, you know, it, it may have been targeted, but the, the whoever shot him got the wrong guy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think we could have clarified that at the beginning. Yes. Michael, the, the point I wanted to make is these are regional issues, and we know Surrey's going through a transition of their police agencies. We have to ensure, and I think given the Griffiths report, there are some indications that they're looking at a different deployment model that will utilize other uh, services. But given the fact we're dealing with a regional situation here, we may be able to fix some of the problems in Surrey with a different deployment model and bring in accountability, bring in school liaison officers. But from my experience in dealing with these gang-related issues in South Vancouver, when we put pressure in one area, they resurface in another area. And that's the problem. Let me ask you another question that kind of has been raised by this case, Cash, and that's the use of closed-circuit surveillance cameras on, on, on the street. And you and I have talked about this before. In this particular case, there was a Surrey traffic camera that did yes. take a, a photo and get some video of a, a suspect vehicle on the day that uh, Paul Bennett was shot. It was like a silver car, but you could not see the license plate number on the car because... Uh, those are deliberately blacked out by these cameras for privacy pr- purposes. Do you think we need more surveillance cameras on the street, and should they be able to record uh, someone's license plate number in a vehicle? Absolutely. Uh, Michael, you brought this to my attention. I thought it was so ridiculous when we could not determine what the license plate was on that Honda vehicle. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. ridiculous. I'm an unyielding proponent of utilizing those types of modern technology in order for us to solve crimes. So if you recall, and you will recall, Mayor Hepner at the time said they are going to utilize that as part of their strategy. They're going to monitor the cameras when there is a shooting in a particular area. Unbeknown to me, it was no use at all because you couldn't get the image you needed. As we continue talking about the one-year anniversary of the death of Paul Bennett, he was the 47-year-old hockey dad, minding his own business, going about his own life, gunned down in his own driveway on a sunny Saturday afternoon one year ago this weekend. That crime still remains unsolved. My guest, Cash Heed, the former Solicitor General for BC. One of the issues we've been talking about is uh, video surveillance on crimes like this. And here's one of the uh, sort of grim, ironic uh, elements of this is that in the aftermath of this shooting, there was some video of a suspect vehicle uh, that police believe was a silver Honda Civic. Uh, shows somebody, guy in a dark, person in dark clothing getting out and then taking off in this vehicle. Police, of course, very interested in that. Here's the thing, though. The video, you can't see the license plate in the video. The frame rate, the resolution of the video is deliberately kind of fuzzy, so you can't identify the people in the cars. You can't identify a, a license plate number, and that's done on purpose because these are traffic study cameras these are cameras set up around surrey there's like 400 of them and they monitor traffic levels in order for planning traffic patterns and things like that isn't that a joke i mean here you got this what could be evidence to crack this case and you can't really use it or at least not use it as effectively as it should be used 
What do you think about that? Should we have more cameras on our streets here to prevent crime? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Hi, Chris. How's it going, Mike? Good. What do you think? Well, I'm totally in agreement with you with the camera resolution and that. I think it's crap that you can't even tell a license plate. I mean, if I'm driving past you, I can read your license plate no problem. It's, yeah, you know, yeah. public place. And, you know, put up more cameras. Let's do that and let's have them actually be able to, you know, peg something out in case something happens. Okay, I've actually had a shooting yeah. at uh, an intersection by one of my houses before. Wow. Guy was shot. He was followed from White Rock right by my house and killed right in the intersection there. So... You're, you're, you're in Lang- where, are you, where do you live, Langley? Uh, I, I used to live in Surrey, actually. This Surrey, one okay. happened at 66 and 152 there. Okay, okay, Chris. Thanks yeah. for call- Thanks for going. Thanks for calling in. Let's go back to Kashid for a minute here. Cash, I mean, there are there are uh, concerns around uh, privacy rights, of course, and the security of this data. Like, if the police collect this data, is it going to be kept secure? But I mean, you can set up a system to to protect privacy rights and keep data secure. Absolutely. You can set up a governance model, a policy model, which addresses these issues uh, very clearly, Mike. Uh, Remember, we're dealing with overt cameras, and we're dealing with them in public spaces. We're not putting them in private spaces and, and going into private unless there's a covert operation. And at that time, the police will have the necessary legal framework to do that. But right. here's what is interesting, and Chris made a point here, is, is, is the video. Dash cam video is asked for by the police continually after a serious incident. Continually. It, right. it, it, it's you know, befuddles me as to why 400 traffic cameras can't be utilized to get that same evidence that the police are asking for after every yeah. serious incident. <laughs> no, I think it's a great point. 604-280-9898. Hi, Bob in Chilliwack. Well, maybe I should uh, uh, change my point because I was of the concern because, uh, Mr. Heed, you've been a solicitor general, you've been a police chief. Uh, sometimes when you get something that you really want to use, but you have to keep it under wraps, like I wonder how difficult it is, say, from your point of view. But after the last caller, and if, if it is in a public space, I'm starting to, just in the last few minutes, to say, especially after the fact this is a year anniversary, maybe you should be able to in a public space, because uh, unless, maybe we should be willing to know, go like Britain, or if you want to be like the American style, if you want, uh, if you if you lose liberty, you don't deserve liberty or security. But if things are getting out of hand, things are getting out of hand. And once again, it'll be government or authorities forced into doing something that they don't really want to do, but the bad guys are forcing your hand into it. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Cash, he mentioned the UK where these cameras on the streets of the United Kingdom are just like they're everywhere and they've solved hundreds of crimes there because of them. And the issue they're utilizing for those cameras right now is the terrorism issue. Of course, we're not, and I hope we never get to the point that the UK is on the terrorism threats that we have. But the UK has been utilizing this system in policing since the early 90s when several studies were actually done which showed they had an effective result not only in solving crime but also in preventing crime where the cameras were installed. Squeeze in one more call. Hi, Ross. Hi. Hi. What do you think? Well, I hate to say, but I actually, for the first time, agree with Cash Heat. I can't believe Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I no, because normally he's just your bureaucrat. Listen, these laws were brought in and they were done by bureaucracy, and they—it's ludicrous. And I think the the issue of England is perfect. They have solved massive crimes. Oh, yeah. And cash, you're wrong. We have terrorism here. It's just not at the same level. Right. Yeah, I think that's what he said. Yes. Okay. Um, cash, thank you for coming on. As always. Take care, Mike. I appreciate it. That is Cash Heed. He is the uh, former Solicitor General of British Columbia. Uh, He is the former chief of the West Vancouver Police Department.